talking to men all the time, there's this challenge of really being being what our what our heart is after. Yeah. Um, there are so many things in Pentecostalism or Charismaticism or whatever you call it, where we, we understand the, the spirit that there there are things that we emphasize that are very important. Things like prophecy, you know, encounters with the presence of God, miracles and healing. I love all of those things. But if we don't have the foundation of the Word of God in our life, those things will lose their impact. You can't live off the experiences. You have to base your life off an encounter with God through His Word. And I've been impacted by His Word. And so, what's in my heart to share with you is a meth as a message that is uh, broad in its scope, but then it narrows down in its perspective to a very personal application. Uh, and and part of it to me is you know deals with a little bit of my upbringing and even even in Pentecostalism, the assemblies of God that I was spent a lot of time in, that it seemed like everything was about missing hell and going to heaven which is important that's eternal but there was this uh, victimization mentality that you just couldn't make it you know just let's wait till we get out of here and just hold on bless God if we can just hold on to faith and get out of here and one day we'll all get to heaven and I've been under serious conviction about that and um, for multiple reasons and, and I can tell you stories of people that I encounter all the time that they're just living to get out of here and it's a shame that we're not living life to the full here and now. And some of the scriptural perspectives that have changed me have to do with the passage in Ephesians where it talks about the gifts to the church that Jesus gave that are for the purpose of the body of Christ coming to the fullness of the stature of Christ. But we're, we're, how far along are we in that? And people talk about the coming of the Lord, and I want to suggest to you my pers- you know, this is me. You can think whatever you want to think. I don't think anybody's nailed it down yet, or we'd quit arguing about it. But I, I believe Jesus is, when he comes back, he's going to come back for that, that church. Yeah. That is what he died to make it. The other passage is in Revelation 19 the first few verses in there, and he talks about the church that has made, and it says this, that the bride has made herself ready. Now, you got to get that. There's a a righteousness of God in Christ that we all have, and we live from that. That That is how we do it. That's how we make ourselves ready, because your spirit man is 100% born again. It is holy. It is righteous. And learning to live from that and it affects the entire nature of your life is brings us into the prepared Christ, the prepared bride. <clears throat> it even said that, you know, she had on the white garments, which were the, and it says that these white garments, and I've always interpreted that as, well, the Lord just blesses us with righteousness. That's not it. The Bible is clear that it is the righteous acts of the saints. Amen. That there's a place in Christ where, we act and live righteously or as God would have us to or right 
right in the situation, right in the circumstances, right in the world. And when I see this perspective, I'm thinking, God, my heart longs after that. I don't want to just play church and just get by. I'm not just holding on by the skin of my teeth. I want to live a life in power of who you are and what you are. December last year, I'm reading through the book of Revelation and the chapter two and three about the seven churches. And, you know, without going back and, and referring to it, you'll, you all have been around church long enough to remember this and all the various ways that we interpret it. Just mention Revelation and your mind goes somewhere. And these seven churches and it goes somewhere with some preconceived ideas and notions and somehow the Holy Spirit weeded all of that out of me and I saw something when I was reading. To simply say that it, it, from, from the first church at Ephesus to the last church, there's a progression of growth of the kingdom of God. Each of the seven churches, it starts with the first church at Ephesus who overcomes uh, basically their lack of uh, their love that had grown cold and as a result they learned they had the blessing of living from eternal life Amen. that that life was in them and flowing through them and it, and it, it simply shifted at maintaining that fervor and that zeal. And you go on and every church is a succession of steps higher to the last church in chapter three. You're, you're sitting on the throne with Jesus. You're ruling and reigning with him. There is a place of authority and dominion that God brings us into that we have very little actualized. We, we we see very little of that. We get glimpses of victory. We get miracles that happen suddenly and on occasion. We have different deliverances that happen from time to time. We have, you know, those suddenlies, but nothing's been stewarded into a permanently. Right. To where there's an ongoing process because we've not been through the steps. We've not embraced the journey into this level of victory. And, and, and overcoming. And I know that's God's plan. God's plan for his church is not to be defeated, but to be overcoming. The whole message to those seven churches is for them to be overcoming. Yeah. Hearing what the Spirit says to the church, hearing what he says, raises them from level to level to level. And that's what God wants to do in his bride. And there's a reason for it. And, and I just want to tell you that God's plan is not for you to stay defeated. Not for you to stay weak, not for you to stay just where you are. The beginning is learning how to live from the eternal life of God in us. The, the beginning. The beginning is learn to know his presence and his life in us in such a way that it's life-giving and life-changing. And then it goes on to the other. But then, you know, there's some challenge, there's some challenges to this. I'm going to get to them personally. Uh, and I, about how to uh, overcome some of them in a minute, but there's a perspective that has to come in because Jesus is introduced as king. Jesus is king. He never came to be voted in as popular or approved. It's not a democracy. We have a hard time understanding this because we're, we're raised in a democracy. And if we don't like somebody, we vote them out. 
And so we get to vote on everything. But Jesus didn't come to establish something where we get to vote. I have a Methodist pastor friend, and we just had a meeting the other day that was really great. A small group of pastors, all denominations. I'm the only spirit-filled one in there. However, the Presbyterian pastor and the Christian church pastor, I've prayed with both of them to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And their world's really rocking and rolling. But uh, anyway, uh, but, you know, uh, their denomination has been voting on whether or not to allow homosexuals as ministers in the congregation. I don't even know the whole deal. And I said, you know, I love you and I appreciate you, but let me tell you something. When a denomination can vote what the king says in and out, we, ha- we are no longer a part of the kingdom. But the same is true to me. I can see that in them, but what about in me? And most of us have learned to adjust the things out of our walk that we don't know how to adapt to and to acclimate at some level and accept a lower level of life than the victory that is pictured in Ephesians 4 and Revelations 19. We've, achieved, we've, we've built these strongholds in our minds. You know, the Bible talks about the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God. And it talks about you know, the strongholds, and it talks about the uh, imaginations, it talks about the high things and the thoughts, and you have to tear them down, tear them down, and, and, and all. And, it's, and it's, it's a forceful, demonstrative act that you have to recognize there's something in you. But I want you to see also that it all, if you take it backwards, it starts with a strong, you know, in the list it talks about strongholds, uh, arguments, high things, thoughts. But if you reverse it, you can see that the foundation of everything was a thought. That somewhere there was a thought that you're trying to reason this out, you're trying to figure it out. And if you entertain that thought long enough, it becomes a high thing. Where you start to say, for instance, with with, uh, me, if I pray for somebody and they're not healed, then I can develop a theology in my mind that it's not God's will to heal. I can quote the scripture that by his stripes we are healed. But when I pray, really in my mind, I have a thought that has become a high thing. Nobody's ever going to be healed. Let me put it another way. Let me make it more personal. That we are overcomers by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, that sin shall not have dominion over you. And I can quote that scripture, and I can tell you the theology of it. And I know that's what I'm supposed to say, but in my mind, I convince myself with a thought that becomes a high thing. I'm just human, so I've got to fail. And we build this defense around us that, well, you know, and, and, uh, and all we could go with illustrations of this, that we all have ways that we try to shift the word to our own benefit yeah. instead of taking it for the authority that it, that, it, that it brings. And so a thought becomes a high thing that we, 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 we lift it up and say, oh, but I'm just human. God understands. I'm saved by grace. And on we could go. And then that high thing becomes an argument. No, you can't tell me I'm wrong. I know what the Bible says. And and then it becomes a stronghold where we're absolutely entrenched in something that we can't get out of, of hopelessness. And I've been there. I've been there. I was told early in my life that there are just some things in your life that you don't try to overcome them because you're not going to be able to, that you just go on and you live with them and, and let God just take care of you. That's what I was taught. 
I was taught don't don't mess with the devil because you don't want to stir up his nest. You know, what a, what a foolish thing. I mean, I've, I've been taught a lot of things, but they they impacted my life. They became part of the stronghold of my life instead of believing the word of God and what God's word says. All right. Now I want to take this to a step further, and I want to tell you there is a cause. There was a time where. Uh, David said, is there not a cause? Is there not a reason? Now, I want to ask you something today. Is there not a cause? Is there not a reason that every one of our hearts long for something more? Is there not a reason? Is there not a purpose? Is there not something Jesus died for? Is there not something he paid for on that cross? Is there not something he accomplished when he went into that grave? Is there not some power that he defeated when he came out of that grave? Is there not something he became when he ascended to the right hand of the Father? Is there not something that he imparts to us out of that relationship? Is there truth that we are not living from? Is there something that's been purchased and paid for that belongs to us that we're not living from? Is there a reality that we're not living from and living in and enjoying the benefits of and so I have this picture that I'd like to unfurl for you. And because I know you are men of the word and I know you know the word and I know your heart's after God, I'm not going to take time to turn to a lot of scriptures as I haven't already. You, you familiar with, I think, probably everything I'm talking about. But I want to draw you a picture of something that I see, a place where God is bringing the church and it comes back to you as an individual. But it starts first with this thing called the kingdom of God. And I've heard that preach for years. I've preached about it, but I've little understood it. And I'm coming to understand it more. You know, the essence of the kingdom is where the king really exercises his dominion. His, his word, his control, his influence. And honestly, that's what we're all here for. But it goes back to the Garden of Eden when he first established the worlds as we know it and he put man there, Adam and the Bible says that he said to them, I think about verse 28 or somewhere along in there, chapter 1 he said, be fruitful multiply, fill, and subdue and there's a process there that starts with fruitful that I think is very important and I'm going to come back to that in a bit but I want you to start with that word subdue that, that word subdue was there for a reason, and, and it had to do with exercising the authority of the king. That God set this world up as a kingdom. Yeah. That man was created in his image, with his influence in him, and out of relationship with God to impact the world. And in fact, when he created this world and he put man there, he didn't isolate man to a world that was totally subdued and totally in order. In fact, if we could use this auditorium for an, an, an example, we could say, let's just say this table right here was the Garden of Eden. And I don't know, I don't know how big the Garden of Eden was compared to the rest of the things that were there. But in the garden, there was a tree. There was a tree that God said, you cannot eat of that tree. Also, the devil is not omnipresent. He is not omnipresent. But God put man right where the devil was. Come on now, you've got to see this. God designed man from the beginning. Part of the, part, of the, part of the creation was a Garden of Eden. The rest of it, they were to learn to steward that. And out of that, spread it to the rest of the world. I don't know what that meant. All I know, there was a garden and there were parts that were not garden. 
There were parts that were pristine and parts that weren't. And God gifted them with a life and a relationship with all the gifts that they were to steward into a fruitfulness, into a feeling, into a lifestyle that by their very nature, by their very nature, they became the essence of who God was and what his kingdom was like. And everywhere they went, it filled, they subdued by life. Man sin, and we know that. Man sin and the fall happened. Man lost the image, man lost the flow. There was not another man who had the life flow of God in him. Oh, you, you really need to. I pray that if there's one part of this you catch today, that you can catch this. The first level of victory in the church of Revelation was learning to live from that eternal life of God, the life flow of God in you. The first level. And Jesus, well, Adam lost that. Not a man had the life of God in him until Jesus. John 5, I think verse 24 I'm going to miss this somewhat, but I know it's in John 5. It says that Jesus gave that life to those who came to him. I think it's verse 26 that says this. The Father had life in himself. He didn't need anybody to give him life. It's the, it's the, it's the, and it's the zoe in different words, you know, that are interpreted uh, life in the Bible, such as... Uh, in, in the parable of the uh, seed where he talks about the, uh, the cares of this life, and it's, it's talking about it's the bios life, that it's your physical life, it deals with that part of you. There's other parts that deal with the suke or the emotional, mental side. But when he's talking, this kind of life is the zoe life, it's the God kind of life. And so he says, come on now. God has this life in himself. And the Bible says he, he gave this life to his son. Come on. Yeah. He did not have it when he was born as a man. Somehow. I don't know how this happens, but the Bible says, Jesus says, the Father gave him life. And Jesus gave that life to people. Jesus became the first man who had that life in him. And he imparted that life flow for a reason. And we're going to talk about that reason in a minute but he had that life flow in him and it was uh, something that the father gave him there was no sin in him there was no reason <laughs> oh jesus holy ghost holy ghost holy ghost holy ghost the life of god in him so he begins to impart it in men and uh i want to say it's first corinthians chapter 15 uh along about verse 45 down in there and, it, and I, I don't think it's 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it talks about the first Adam and what um, has, all my life has been, I've been told it was the second Adam. Well, there is no second Adam. The scripture says, I think it's verse 45 says there was the first Adam and there was the last Adam. Somebody say last Adam. Last. There's a reason why to me that is important. There was the nature of Adam that was passed down to humanity 
that impacted and caused every man to not have the life of God, to not have the hope, to not have the ability. And every man was impacted by that life. And I have people say to me today, I'm just a child of Adam. I'm just a child of my father. No, you are not just a child of Adam. You are not just a child of your father. Jesus was the last Adam. And what this says to me, all of Adam's fall stops here. Two verses later, he says, there was a first man and there was a second man. I want you to know that the first man created a corruption. The second man, Jesus, opened a life. He was a life-giving spirit, the Bible says. He was a life-giving spirit. His seed were filled with the life of God. Peter says that you have been born again, not with corruptible seed, but with the incorruptible seed of God. I want to tell you, that every one of you are born again, not with the corruptible seed of Adam, not just with the corruptible seed of our heritage. And all of us have it. All of us have had it in us. But you've got something greater in you. You have the life of God inside of you. You have the nature of God inside of you. You have the kingdom of God inside of you. You have all of this inside of you. And it's for a reason. When Jesus first came, he said, in, in Matthew 4, and I want to say about verse 17, after he had been tempted, after he had been tried and all of that, and after he had been through everything he had been, the first thing he did, is he, what is it? he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, this, this is what he's saying. Change the way you think. That word, you know, it has obviously more implications than that. But the, the initial meeting is change the way you think. Change the way you're perceiving things. Quit doing things the way you are. Quit operating from those parameters. Adjust your thinking. I've brought my kingdom with me. And so his first message was, I'm here for a purpose. There was a kingdom that was established and has been lost, and I'm here to reestablish this place of authority of mankind. Amen. He is king of kings. The Bible says we are kings and priests in the Lord. Don't become arrogant. Don't become proud because in the kingdom of God, the higher you go, the more you serve and the more it costs you and the more you give. There's no arrogance in it, but there is an authority. There is a power. There is a release of of demonstration of it when you understand this principle. When you become arrogant in the kingdom, you lose it. When you start boasting about who you are and what you are, you can lose it in a minute, in a heartbeat. Your flesh can become exalted and it will cut you off from that life flow because the spirit and the flesh are contrary to one another. But there's a life flow in the kingdom that comes out of humility and brokenness and and serving your Lord. That's why the people like John got the biggest revelation when he's in the worst of circumstances or the apostle Paul who gets so much of the New Testament when he's being crushed and when he's being broken and when he's going through the prisons and all the stuff that he has been through. There's something in the kingdom. We never escape the suffering. There's something in this world that involves conflict for the people of God who are here to have dominion and to rule. The garden started with the enemy there and the garden started with temptation there. It is not sin to have temptation and to feel these battles. We are there Adam could have overcome had he listened to God and stood on his word and stood his ground. You and I have things that Adam 
he didn't have. He didn't have a redeemer. He didn't have Jesus as his intercessor. You know, there are some things, and what else we can say, I don't know. But I want to tell you that you have the blood of Jesus. You have the name of Jesus. You have his resurrection. You have his resurrection life inside of you right now. This isn't something obscure. It isn't something that is unrelated. It is absolutely. We've got to grip this, and there's a reason for it. Because God wants you to impact this culture. He wants to impact it by first impacting your life. He wants to change who you are so that you can continue to change your world. And I want to emphasize that change who you are so your world can be changed. So Jesus came to redeem mankind. In fact, he was the last Adam, the second man. And then the Bible tells us in I think it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 where it says that we are new creations, new creatures in Christ. Now this is what I want you to get out of that. And I've always wondered, and, and there's two applications of this that I hope that you will get inside of you. Number one is that when you become born again, you are a creature, a something that has never existed before. And I heard that and I never comprehended what it means. But this is what it means. Before Christ, I was just me. When I'm born again now, the life of God has been imparted into me. Yeah. The world has never seen a Jerry Stewart with the life of God in him until Jerry Stewart was here. I am a new creation. My spirit man is 100% born again, and you are too. You are, one, you are a person that you were not before you were born again. I don't know what you used to be or what you used to do before you were born again. But I want to tell you, you are a person now that the world has never seen before, and you know that something has changed inside of you. You know that you're a new creator. You know that you're not the same person. The reality is that we get into the struggles and that's where we start the rationalization and we develop the thoughts that are turned into high things that becomes into things we defend into strongholds and we start dumbing ourselves down and saying we gotta we gotta back up we gotta say wait a minute and i'm not all this now let me tell you you are a new creature in christ and in this kingdom that god established here's how you fit into it two two ways and then we're going to make this very personal number one in matthew 16 where jesus said i will build what did jesus say he would build is that this no in fact, when you go back to the origins of the word ecclesia, it, Jesus used it in a religion, in, a, in, a, in his kingdom context. It had no relation. He didn't say, I'll build my temple. He didn't say, I'll build my synagogue. Right. It, 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 and in fact, you know, you got to help me. Forgive me here, but I feel so broken because of what I know that ecclesia is or ecclesia, however you want to say it. And how prostituted the American church has made it. We, we have enculturated the church into our comfort zones. Which is totally contrary to what Christ came to establish. We have enculturated the church into our environment. We've shifted it and changed it to make it fit our comfort zones. And when you understand what he said, when he said, I will build my ecclesia, you're going to realize we've missed it. 
Ecclesia in Jesus' days, it had first been used by the uh, Greeks, and now in his days it was used by the Romans. Uh, Ecclesia was a body of people that were sent into Israel. And these people that were sent into Israel, when a decision had to be made or something had to happen in the culture, they would be called out and come together. They were Romans. They had the full authority of Rome behind them. And these people, there could be as few as two or three, would get together and their decisions, because they were Romans, would influence the entire culture and change the way things happened. The reason was they were put there as an ecclesia, a group of people who were there to take what was in Rome and impart it into the land of Israel. So that when the, the, the king finally comes to Israel, he comes to a land that thinks like, looks like, talks like, acts like Rome. So that he comes into a place that looks like his homeland. They are there with an authority to see that happen. And so when he said, he said, I will build my ecclesia, those people, those disciples knew what he was saying. He wasn't saying, I'm going to build a group of people that just come together and worship and say, hallelujah, how great thou art. No, he was saying, I've come together to put something in you that changes the world you live in, that it's going to radically alter and change it. Let me illustrate it like this. If you were to go to the island of Cuba today, what language would they speak? Why do they speak Spanish? They were colonized by the Spain. Colonization is the same word in contemporary terms as ecclesia. The Spaniards would come over and drop people into Cuba and they would take the culture of Spain and impregnate the island of Cuba with it. They speak the language. They eat tacos. I mean, you know, they have this, his, this Latin culture in them because they were colonized by the Spaniards. The island of Haiti, the Haiti, what do they speak? They speak French. And they drink wine and eat cheese. Why do they drink wine, eat cheese, and speak French? Because they were colonized by who? The French. The French. And they came in and they changed the culture where it looks like France. If you were to go to the Bahamas, what language do they speak? English. And they drink tea. And they drive on the left-hand side of the road. Because who colonized them? England. That is the picture of the ecclesia. That those people changed the culture to become like them. They didn't say, go over to Cuba and say, just keep your traditions, keep like you want to, keep your rules, keep your ways. No, there was a king who said, you're going to submit to this authority. And I have some people here who are empowered by me to establish what I've given, what I want my culture here. When, God, when Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia, he said, I'm going to bring some people in that are going to know me. Look, we don't even know him. Yeah. Jesus said, you know, when Jesus could not tell Peter who he was until Peter knew who he was. When Peter knew who he was, no, you got to get this. You can't be who God wants you to be until you know who he is. We don't know he's king. We don't know who he is. We don't know he's Lord. He's master of the universe. He has a plan here. We don't argue with him. He's not somebody that we, he's not a dictator, but he is a king. He has all authority. He is not somebody that tries to oppress and all of that, but he is king. He has a system. He has an authority. You can't vote him in and you can't vote him out. Amen. When Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia, 
He had no conception of what we've made. But I want to put a radical, world-changing impact in people that everywhere they go, they take my will. The pastor friend that led devotion, the Methodist pastor the other day, uh, you know, one of the things that he said, he said, every, at our, we have a small group of pastors gathering, and we, we, it's a great time. But uh, he said, every Sunday, twice a Sunday, we recite the Lord's Prayer. He used to pastor a Methodist church somewhere around here, or he went up there where we are. And uh, he, uh, he said, and we, we pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is. And he said, we don't even know what we're praying. And he was at a loss. The beautiful thing was in our pastor's gathering, their hearts are so open. And the beautiful thing was, he says, I want to know. How do we get this more? What is this more? And he used the love of God for an example. And he read the description of the love of God. And he's just overwhelmed. Why can't we live this? this I know this is his kingdom. Yeah. I know this is his kingdom. Whew. And I talked to, just after that, another uh, man and his wife. Uh, and his wife had the question. And, and she was, had been an atheist and now becoming a believer and she's after God, and so she and her husband are reading the Bible together. And this is a, a, a young millennial couple, and, and, and uh, you know she's from a, she's from the Asian culture, no Christianity at all in her heritage, no 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 religion at all in her character. So she's now following Christ. And the problem is they they read the Gospels and they read the Book of Acts and they see where God does miracles and signs and wonders. And her question to her husband is, you know, we are searching for these churches, and they live in a place in Atlanta where, it, it, you know, they visited many churches before. He told me one time, he said, we finally found a church that actually preaches out of the Bible. <sighs> and she says, if Christianity is real, where is this demonstration of the kingdom? She asked, as an atheist convert, where are the people that live like this? You know, Mahatma Gandhi went to a Presbyterian church because he was seeking Jesus. And, and, and history records that Mahatma Gandhi said, I would have been a Christian. I was convinced that it was true. And then I met one. Serious. History. Where is the church? We've lost this perception. We've lost this reality. And I'm a new creature for a reason. Yeah. I'm a part of the ecclesia. I'm going to take it a step further. You are an ambassador on assignment. The Bible says in, again, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, that we are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador. And, and let me just illustrate to you how important that is. If you become an ambassador for McDonald's, 
and you go to downtown Atlanta, I'm repping, and, and what is it? You become McDonough when you walk in. If, if you are an ambassador of the United States and you go to England, you are the embodiment of the government, the will, everything of that nation. Yes, yes. When you walk in, the United States of America walks the full backing of the government walks in. It's why Benghazi was such a travesty, where this, where the, the, the ambassador there was not helped. He, he was the United States of America. When they let him die, let him get killed, whatever happened, I don't know, you know, all that stuff goes along with that. But let me just tell you something. You become a living, walking United States of America. The land where you live, everything about you is taken care of by the kingdom that sent you. Jesus said, take no thought what you shall eat or drink, but seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Come on now. You don't have to worry. You seek first the king, the king and his dominion and his domain. And, and it doesn't matter what you do for a living. You don't have to be a pastor like pastor this pastor Eddie here or that pastor Eddie over there. You don't have to be a pastor. It's wherever you are, whatever you do, wherever you go, you are the kingdom of God. You are an ambassador on assignment. And your goal is to impregnate that atmosphere with the things of heaven, to shift the culture, to make a difference, that the atmosphere changes because you are there. They need the impact of you in, in this world, the school that you were in. But let's take it a little bit further. Dale here, he's just a he's just a he's just a US citizen. No, let, let me make you the ambassador of England in the United States. And you, Dale, are an Englishman that's here. If I just a normal tourist man, if I go up to Dale and slap him, what do we have? A fight. And that just but it's an assault between me and Dale. And it could be a fight if you know got that kind of way. But if I go up to you as an ambassador from England and I slap him, what do I have? An act of war. We have an international incident. Because all of England... Oh, why are you worried about defending yourself? Why are you worried about who's backing up your word? Why are you worried about what's coming your way? You are my ambassador. You are on assignment. All of heaven backs you up. And I want to tell you what, the president of the United States may not back you up. The government may not back you up. But I want you to know we have a king who does not back down, who stands on his word, who backs up his people. When you stand on his word, he will stand up for you. He will back you up. And it's time for the church to realize I am a part of something that was the design of God from the beginning. And the end result is that the body of Christ be and become all that she's designed to be. The fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ that we become the bride that is prepared, the, the bride that is prepared for the bridegroom to present itself because what we've done has lined up with who he is and what his heart is. That's what we're after. And nothing less than that will do. And we must have to adjust. We must have to move our minds out of that 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 whatever it is, that cloudy stage, that indifferent stage, that whatever it is, that indifference that we just kind of like acquiesce to the environment. And again, we we basically we enculturate the church within our own mind in some way, and we've got to tear down the strongholds, tear down those high things, tear down those arguments, reject those thoughts that are contrary to the nature of Christ. Amen. Amen. 
Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says you're a new creature. Verse 20 says you're an ambassador. Verse 21 says, He became our sin so that we could become what? How many of you have ever felt unrighteous? How many of you had an unrighteous thought? How many of you had an unrighteous deed within the last 24 hours? Hey, <laughs> getting a little too close, preacher. No, 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 I'm serious. Where is the new creature? This is a very important question. It's critical. It's critical mass here. Not a mass in a service, but you know, very important point. Your spirit man is 100% born again, holy, righteous. Your inner man, your born again man, all of life going forward is about finding obstacles to that nature of Christ in you, meeting the trees that challenge you and draw you in, but you say no. Meeting the tempter who comes at you and says, oh, has God said, are you really this, that, or the other? And you go back to the Word and you stand on the Word. It isn't that it doesn't have an appeal because you are a, a person. You are a human. You are made of the dirt of this earth. You're in this world. You are designed by God to encounter these things and grow. So what do I do? Let's just pretend that this little white spot on his shirt is his spirit man, born again. There comes times where this mind has thoughts that aren't good. And so he goes down here to my spirit man and says, this doesn't line up with what I know I am born again. So I may have to go to the Word and reprogram my brain to think and find how am I supposed to think because I know that what I'm thinking up here grieves this in here. And I have to find a way to, to get peace in my mind by building something that's all this new man in me. So I get the word of truth in me. And I learn to live from that. And I learn to live out of that. There, there, are, there are different places in the Bible that, that teach us exactly how this works. And I want to give you just some places, if I can just take a minute to give you some places in the Bible. And then, and, and then I'm going to tell you a story that will illustrate this that I think will make it live for everybody, okay? Does that work? Yeah, okay, I'm going to go to Romans chapter 6, and I'm just going to highlight some verses. It says in verse 4, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. What does it say? We were. Somebody say we were. We were. That just as Christ was raised from the dead. Somebody say just as Christ, Christ. was raised from the dead <laughs> by the glory of the Father. Even so we should walk in newness of life. 1 John 5, 14 says, as he is, so are we in this world. How does that become a reality? It is spiritually a reality right now, and Jesus wants us to become that mature man, that bride that's ready. But it's a reality. You start knowing this is real. It's a reality. This is a spiritual reality. Let me ask you a question. What's more eternal that chair you're sitting in this concrete you're standing on 
or what's going on in your spirit man? Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? If you were living for something, I'll just ask a redundant question here, a rhetorical question. But have any of you ever given yourself to the pleasure of sin for a moment and thought, well, that wasn't worth it? <laughs> the consequences of it versus the choice I could have made. And that which is eternal stays with me. And we have to learn to value what is eternal inside of us. And this truth that I have been buried with him. Verse 6 says, knowing this, that our old man, somebody say old man, that's not talking about your daddy, that's talking about your old nature, was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Verse 11, likewise you also reckon or count or consider or figure or calculate that yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have to know it. We have to count it in. We have to figure it into everything. And you will not walk through anything in this life where you don't have to do this process. And if you're a person of faith who realize you're here on a purpose, you've been bought with a price for a reason, and something inside of you longs for something more, and is drawing you into something, that there's, there's this destiny that you were designed for, somehow these concepts have to sink in that affect these kind of decisions when we come here, where we have to remind ourselves, I'm something I didn't used to be because I was buried with him. I have been raised in him. This is not the decision I make now. Yeah. This is not where I go. Obviously, we don't do that without stumbling, but we do it with power and authority. We do it with the weapons of our warfare that are not carnal. We can't fight it with carnal weapons. You, get, you become carnal, you become just like the devil. Yeah. Colossians, I'm going to go over, I think, to Colossians chapter 3. And I just want to take this a little bit further. I want to tell you a story. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3. For you died. What? What? If I died, why does it still hurt? Why does I still feel this? Why do I still want to say that? Why do I still want to have that? Come on, you know. Because I've got to know this. And when I feel and I think, I've got to say, wait a minute. That, something, that died. If I don't know it's already dead in Christ, I'll be trying to kill it. God doesn't want anything in you that he hasn't already given you. Oh, you got to, I pray you chew on this one. God doesn't want anything in you and through you that he hasn't already given and provided for you in Christ. Nothing. 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 So many ways we could illustrate that, but that takes time. But nothing. Even the love of God. We love others because. We love him because he. That's just one illustration. How can, you live, how can you have the peace of God in you? Because Jesus said, my peace I give you. There's nothing. Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1 talks about all things that pertain to life and God. All things. He said all things. Either God is true and man is a liar, or man is true and God is a liar. 
The Bible says all things that pertain to life and God in 2 Peter chapter 1 about verse 3 or somewhere along in there. And he goes on and he says so that you can escape the corruptions that are in this world through lust. Come on now. So that you can escape the corruptions. You don't believe that if I don't read it, do you? You want me to read it? Let me turn over there and read it because I'm trying to wrap this up, but we're getting there. 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to start with verse 2, which says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as His divine power. Whose power? His power. His divine power. Not my ability to make it happen. I get strong sometimes when I'm preaching, but don't ever mistake the strength of my voice with the power of Him because I can be weak and have a little voice, but His power is just as strong. I get strong sometimes in my voice and in my nature because I get excited. But I'm going to tell you, that doesn't mean the power of God is here. The power of God is here because He's here. He is strong. He is strong. I can be the, at my weakest and he's still strong. Amen. And I can tell you that there are times when I feel at my weakest and I don't have a voice and my voice is gone, but I know he's still there. And I've prayed with people when I hardly have a voice and can't say nothing. In fact, my most powerful prayers of late seem to be when I say nothing at all. And somebody just says, will you pray for me? And we just come together and I never utter a word. And it's like all of a sudden heaven comes down because the power of God is present to do whatever God is doing. Amen. And I'm telling you, it's because I know there's a power that's not me, that's not determined by the words of my mouth. And don't mistake the words of the tone or the nature by that at all. Whether I have biceps that are like thighs or something like that, or, you know, I'm just saying, has nothing to do with the power of God. Do you understand? He says, His divine power has given to us has. Somebody say has. Past tense. What he has already given me, I don't have to ask him for. Come on now. you got to get this. God's given me a million dollars right here. And there it is. Oh, I see it. Isn't that pretty? God, would you, could you please? Oh, there it is right there. What a foolish thing. What do you have in the bank of heaven that you're not drawing on that you need? His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life. Life? 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 And godliness, being like God. Through how? Through what? This is so important. Knowledge involves information, but it also, knowledge always has an encounter. Yeah. Knowledge without an encounter is a religion. Yeah. Knowledge has to be stewarded into an encounter, into an experience. Through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, and I'm just going to read on down here, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. Somebody say exceedingly. Exceedingly. Great. Great. Precious. Precious. Promises. Promises. You want to know how exceeding they are? Mm -hmm. Way beyond whatever problem you have. Amen. 
Way beyond whatever. Why did they pick up 12 basket poles and seven basket poles? Because God always does exceedingly more. Yeah. He's painting a picture. Whatever your need is, I always had more than enough. Not only do I meet the need, but it's so far beyond, you just can't even imagine. God wants us to know that he's always, how much grace does he get? Where sin abounds, grace does just barely get you over the top. What does it say? Come on, what does it say? Much more. How much more? Much. Wow. Why? God wants us to know we're saved. That through these, you may be partakers of the list of do's and don'ts the Bible says you, and the church says you ought to do. The catechism that some churches teach you. The, you know, check off the membership list where you join some churches. Now, is that what it says? What does it say? That you might be partakers of what? So that you become on the inside. His very nature. Your old nature. Old man has been, come on, crucified. When I learned to believe God's word and that spiritual reality over my experience, I learn to draw what he is in here instead of what I feel out here. And soon what I am in here starts manifesting out there. And my feelings and my thoughts and all that come into line with it. You might be protector of divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And, and most people would translate that today, well, just grace is going to see you through to where you can just live in this corruption. And no, it doesn't work that way. God wants us to be fruitful before, you know, as we learn to subdue. Be fruitful, multiply, replenish, and all that. Therefore, verse 5 of Colossians 3 says, Therefore put to death your members which are on earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He says, put to death what? Your members. So what does he say? There is a spiritual reality that has happened in you. And he is saying, now take this reality and impose it on your members. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up with a story. Here's the story. I'm going to tell the story as best I can, as briefly as I can. Uh, George Washington. I'm going to try to uh, remember the names, and they're, they're fleeing my mind right now. But here's this. I'm going to tell the story as best I can. One of Washington's leading men had a pastor friend who left his denomination to become another minister in another denomination. He, he became antagonistic toward that minister and gave him the dickens. Really hard, hard time. Uh, and they became enemies. I mean, this, this military guy was so against this pastor. Well, a long story, but basically, you know, bottom line is this, this guy, and I can almost remember his name. I may get it before I finish the story. Or this, this military guy, one of the military leaders, ended up committing treason, or about to, and 
as the story goes, the British wouldn't let him because they didn't like the, they thought he was a real flake. But the bottom line is he was going to commit treason, so Washington was going to have him ex executed. And the pastor walks 70 miles to where he's going to be executed. And as he walks the 70 miles to where, this is a true story, so, you know, I've read, but he walks 70 miles to where he's going to be executed. And, and, and uh, President Washington, or General, I think he was a general at the time. I don't know if he was president. I don't think he was president. And, and the, the, the pastor, on, on, they, they, are, they are arch enemies. But Washington doesn't know it. And he pleads for this man. I want to say his name is Wild Man or Wildman or something like that. Some name that fit his character anyway. The, you know, that's what I thought of when I read the story. But anyway, he, uh, this leader, and, and Washington says to this pastor, I think his name was Peter, if I'm not mistaken, says to him, I can understand your compassion toward this man since you are his friend. And this man says to Washington, we are arch enemies. I am not his friend. But he was standing there doing what was right in his heart in spite of what he felt to that man. And Washington said, okay, then I'm dismissing the charges. This man and this preacher who were arch enemies walked 70 miles home together. And they became good friends. And I want you to watch in this story how living from what you are changes everything. This pastor decided that what was in him was greater than what was outside of him. That he wasn't going to allow his thinking who could have said he's going to get what he deserves or his emotions or even his fear of General Washington I'm going on what I know is right in my spirit. This man deserves mercy. And so he goes there and, and he presses past all of that. And, and, and as he does, becomes so willing that he, sh he stands on his behalf. So he shakes his mind and he shakes his emotions, not based on what they are by nature that has been crucified with Christ, but based on the new man that is on the inside. As a result, it shifts the atmosphere. The, George Washington changes his mind. And, and, and uh, in the history that I read, it says that this same attitude prevailed in other situations that the pres that uh, General Washington would, would handle as he went down the road, that he had this uh, nature of being more uh, compassionate toward them instead of just wanting to off their head or hang. I think they, they were hanging them back then. And, and, and notice what happens. Suddenly the whole atmosphere changes. This man changes that hated him. And suddenly they both become friends. And suddenly this atmosphere of heaven begins to fill earth because one man decided there's something inside of me that's greater than what I'm feeling. With me, for instance, I have such an, in, in my nature, two of the strongest things that I live from. One is knowing that the healing of the Lord is 100% provided. There's no question in my mind. 
knowing that I'm the righteousness of God, that is so strong in me that it becomes the focal point for my life. Nothing, I, I don't, you know, the devil has no right to me because he's made me righteous. Yeah. God, God made me righteous. 